This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Devapriya Sharkar's new book, titled Possible Knowledge, The Literary Forms of Early Modern Science, is a study of how poets and philosophers took up the possible as an alternative to the actual. By pushing back against the positivism we associate so strongly with the scientific revolution, the literary texts examined in this book, from Shakespeare's Macbeth to Margaret Cavendish's poetry and prose, invited their readers to inhabit worlds not yet known, to take up uncertainty and contingency as habits of thought. I am excited to welcome Devopriya Sharkar to the podcast to discuss possible knowledge. Devopriya is professor of English at the University of Connecticut, Avery Point. Devopriya has published articles in English Literary Renaissance, Spencer Studies, and Shakespeare Studies, and has received long-term fellowships from the Huntington Library and the Folger Shakespeare Library. Welcome to the podcast, Devopriya. Thanks so much for having me. One of my favorite things about possible knowledge is the powerful defense of poetry as offering us a medium for speculation, for imagining the world otherwise. Why is this such an important observation to make in 2023? Um, I love this question and that we are starting with this. Um, I'll just begin by saying that there is a long tradition of imaginative writing, shaping ideas about the real world, you know, from offering uh, models of political systems to thinking about technological innovation. But despite all of this, uh, the fictional, the imagined, and by extension, the literary is often taken, it was often not taken seriously as an object of knowledge or a way of knowing. And so I think this kind of defense, um, as you're calling it, and as I call it, I guess, in the book, is important because it's making an epistemological and intellectual claim for literature. Um, You might think of something like speculative fiction, which is the most um, obvious place to go and think about radical world making. These are not only ways of escaping from reality, but imagining radical communities and alternate ways of being that have profound 
political, social import, right? Um, and of course, we know that fiction does not reflect what's happening in the world only, although it does that. Uh, but it is asking us to think about different ways of existence, social structures. So these are, I think, the various main reasons why I think it's important to think about fiction or literature or poetry doing something differently in relationship to reality. And particularly in 2023, I think as a teacher, I also think this question is important because my students, I think all our students are struggling with big things, living in the wake of a global pandemic, um, confronted by the urgency of the climate crisis. They are hungry for different ways of thinking about their role and responsibility in the world. And they are also looking for models, ideas, techniques of engaging with the world that might not be captured by more practical, instrumental, utilitarian forms of knowledge production that they're often pushed towards. So I think there is like a big pedagogical reason to um, make this kind of defense. Literary form is not always thought of as pertinent to knowledge production. Indeed, it might seem like knowledge necessarily precedes literary form. But you offer a wonderful way to rethink the connection between epistemology and literary form. Can you share that with us? So I will say that my work um, connects questions of form, which in our field of early modern literary studies has largely been shaped by scholarship on poetics, aesthetics, rhetoric. Um, I don't think I'm misrepresenting that. Um, whereas questions of epistemology are often taken up by intellectual historians, um, including um, science studies scholars, I would say, which is what I would place my work. Um, so I'm trying to bring these fields together in some ways. And this is why I think sometimes the primary evidence for my book, which looks at writers uh, from Spencer to Milton to Shakespeare uh, to Cavendish, might look more typically like a book on poetry and poetics and form rather than one on literature and science. Um, so I, I, I think what my contribution to thinking about form is that the book argues for a literary epistemology that is about the kinds of techniques, strategies that are inherent in literary making and that emerge from the art of poesy as early moderns would think about it, um, rather than methods that are being brought in from other disciplines like science um, or fields like law, uh, right? So my book focuses on the um, intellectual principles that underlie different kinds of literary forms. And I think about form at the macro level. Um, the question of genre is really central to the book. But I also think of form at um, micro level, I guess. Um, so I think about grammatical moods and figures of speech. Um, so different kinds of structuring principles that shape literary world making is fundamental to the project. And I think those thinking about them as methods or strategies allows us to get closer to thinking about knowledge. Yeah, and I wanna dig into the variety of 
uh, uh, different um, literary forms and how they're cultivated. But first, I want to ask you about the intellectual principles of the literary production of your book. Uh, possible knowledge began as a dissertation. What did the development from dissertation to book project look like? What changes did you make? And how do you reflect on those changes? So for me, the main changes, I, I would say, were conceptual and methodological. Um, the primary text, and here I mean the primary literary text, um, remained unchanged uh, from the dissertation to the book. Um, but the arguments about them and the underlying critical and theoretical methodologies uh, driving these arguments shifted completely. So when I started this project, I, I really thought I was making an argument for a certain kind of literary prehistory of scientific probability. Um, so, so it's a commonplace in the period that this is a period of deep uncertainty. There is no philosophical cert uh, certainty in the aftermath of big events like the Cosmo, uh, the Copernican revolution, right? So in English uh, thinkers, especially natural philosophers, this argument goes, turn to different kinds of probabilistic ways of knowing um, rather than seeking certainty. So I really thought I was entering this conversation and by looking at other ways of uncertain thinking, um, such as hypothetical, hypothesis or counterfactuals, I was expanding the ways of like probabilistic thinking. So that's how I approached the project initially. So I was very much working in the dissertation with rubrics that I think we have inherited from like amazing work in intellectual history in the last 40, 50 years. Um, and so when I start, made the shift to working on the book, I really thought that I had to bolster up like the science side of things. So um, as I was saying, my primary texts are literary texts, um, but I thought that I had to add maybe like a comparison to Robert Hooke when I think about Margaret Cavendish, because that's um, very, that's an obvious place to go in a literature and science book, right? And I had certain preconceived notions about what the book should look like that I couldn't uh, explore in the dissertation. Um, but as I, just kind of worked through the process of revision, I really came to the conclusion that this was not working and the early modern writers were not really thinking probabilistically or only like that. They of course were, as we have a lot of scholarship um, showing. And they were obviously not always interested or even engaging with science. Instead, they were mobilizing the various possibilities opened up by this culture of uncertainty because they were working with an art that was like fundamentally about like things that are not real, not known, not tangible, right? So the uncertain is a very productive place for literary writers. And Philip Sidney's defense of poesy in some ways just is all over the book, but it was just the theoretical touchstone because Sadiq is very explicit about how literary writers are doing something different when they're creating worlds that he calls maybe and should be, right? So he's the poets are creating different kinds of worlds through different methods that are not available or not used by natural philosophers, but also not used by moral philosophers or historians. And this really kind of fundamental shift 
I think helped me get over the fact that I felt that I had to keep adding to the book um, and just gave me a lot of freedom Mm -hmm. to just uh, reshape um, what I already had. Um, And it also allowed me to bring in a lot of the questions of form and poetics that I think I was always interested in, but because I thought it was a different kind of project, I really hadn't had time to explore. Um, And so I think that was kind of the other conceptual shift. And I would say that was the methodological shift too, because I was not only thinking about this as a book that just brings conversations about literature and science together, but really putting the literary forward. And what I'm hearing is uh, the way in which your approach to the revision kind of mirrors the themes in the book. You know, it's not it's not that what the dissertation is, but what the book might be like inhabiting that speculative subjunctive as part of that process of revision, which I think is such a beautiful idea. I love that. I just have to I'm going to note that down. Yeah, yeah. Um, to the listeners who might be writing a dissertation or revising one for book publication or advising a dissertation writer, um, what advice would you give them? This is such a useful question, but also such a difficult one, because I think writing and revising is such a personal process and driven by our, our individual circumstances. But at every stage, right, there are external factors um, and deadlines and all of that, especially for grad students and early career scholars that um, they have to grapple with. So I'll try to reflect maybe on what was most useful for me. And um, hopefully there'll be some advice in that. Um, So, I mean, the first thing I think to say is that the main differences between the dissertation and the book right about both your orientation to the project and your orientation to the audience mm-hmm. right the dissertation is something that, where you're trying to figure out what your topic is what your expertise is as you're writing it so you're amassing an archive but you're also encountering a lot of materials for the first time that are theoretical conceptual so it's really about understanding your topic and i think for a lot of us, it happens while by the time we finish, we know what the topic is, right? And at the same time, you're writing for a certain audience, you're writing for your committee. This is not a project that is uh, for a wider readership. Um, And often those kind of like not knowing what it's about or that you're writing for a certain set of people can feel constraining, but um, it can also, I think, be freeing because you always have someone to talk with or engage with. And I would say my my committee in particular really helped me figure out what I could do in the time that I had and helped me put aside things that didn't fit in the project at that stage. And that is also something that you learn in the process of writing the dissertation that can be useful later on. Um, The book, on the other hand, of course, is um, for a wider audience. But I think like you also have to change your orientation to the project and really inhabit the idea that you know the topic or you know enough about the topic in a way that you didn't know in the first stage. And I think that uh, mental shift um, is important because then you also are able to think about the audiences that you're writing for. Right. And 
as I was talking about my project, initially I thought I was writing towards a field of literature and science scholars, but then I could also imagine myself writing to other audiences, like those working on form, but I hope those working on different genres, those interested in drama or those interested in romance and things like that, right? Um, And I think the more widely you can imagine your audience and the more ambitiously you can imagine it, um, I think that helps the book. Um, it's, It's an aspiration rather than something that I think a lot of us can get to, but I think that that ambition, I think, is important. Um, and it allows you to think at a more broader conceptual level rather than just get always get caught in the nitty gritties, which I also think can happen um, in the process of revision. Okay, having said all this, I think I have one maybe concrete piece of advice that I think uh, was helpful for me. Um, and if your circumstances allow, I would say it's always helpful to step away from the dissertation. Um, for some time before working on the book immediately. And I realize this is not possible for everyone. Um, But I think that stepping away gives you the distance and allows you to really think about the book as a different project, which I think is necessary. Um, And by stepping away, it doesn't mean you're giving up the work, right? You can read other things, you can expand your ideas. But I think it kind of creates a break from what you've been just kind of writing about all the time for two or three years and um, approach the project differently. And that helps with your own relationship to the project. Yeah, and it, it also seems to me that one would need to like kind of refill their cup, you know, they need to, you need to go find new inspirations and new, new interest to, to inform the, the next stage of the project. Um, yeah, that's all wonderful advice. Thank you. Um, Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen is interested in that moment where we reach a new horizon of knowledge. Travel literature about the Americas was one object lesson for how knowledge comes in the world. Um, Talk to us about the uh, proem of book two and the relationship between present knowledge and possible actuality. The Spencer chapter was the first one I wrote and the one I've revised the most uh, throughout the process. Um, so it's it's been with me the longest. Uh, and I think in some ways it's the easiest to talk about, but also the hardest because I've been through so many iterations. So the moment uh, that you're talking about the proem, um, I'm interested in specifically in the, how the narrator is speaking about those who dismiss fairyland as not being real. and reminding readers that you know just because it isn't real now doesn't mean that it won't be discovered and I put discovered in quotations every time I say it um, uh, for listeners um, that just because it hasn't been discovered now doesn't mean that it won't be just think of all the other places that we've recently been to right he talks about Virginia the Indian Peru and um, other things Um, And then he goes on to say, we can't just stop thinking about what is not visible to us now, but just think, what if there are, like, if there are places in the cosmos, other stars which are habitable, where there are people there, right? Like some version of that. So he's basically like talking about cartography and then scaling it up to cosmology. And I'm interested in 
these moments as the poem constructing what I call the speculative method, um, a method that privileges um, ideas of possible existence and then models ways of thinking for readers on how they can imaginatively project um, and think about what might exist and what might be found or what might be known based on limited current knowledge. So this moment in particular plays on tropes of travel and engages with travel literature as I um, already gestured uh, towards. Um, and Spencer is really trying to kind of like say that thinking about fairyland along those worlds can activate processes that would lead to locating them in the future. Um, I'm not saying that Spencer is like saying that fairyland is real. Obviously this is kind of a joke in some ways, right? Um, but the underlying idea that you don't have to rely on visual or empirical epistemologies, but rather that you can imagine and this imaginative projection into the future can be a catalyst for learning, um, I think is central to uh, this moment. Um, and I think for me, it becomes really clear when he says, but you just have to keep inquiring. He says more, you have to more inquire to find this kind of place. And then he launches into, but imagine what if there was like, what if in every other star there was something to be found, right? And he, that seems to me like the construction of a method, right? That's repeatable, that is iterative, that can be applied to different scales. Um, that is a way of knowing the world based on what you do not know in the present. And it seems to me a very particular imaginative exercise rather than an empirical one or even like a rational one. You just have to kind of take these leaps of imagination that will allow you to extend beyond what you think is possible. Yeah. I learned a lot from your discussion of Merlin's prophecy and Brittemard's response in book three. Can you walk us through your interpretation of that section of Spencer's poem? Sure. Um, so I just spoke about um, the poem modeling a kind of speculative method for the reader. And I read this moment, um, the interaction between Merlin and Brittemard and Merlin's prophecy as an instance where um, Brittemard is the ideal reader who practical engagement with such speculative methods will activate her role in shaping the future. Um, and I do this through by thinking about Merlin as the figure of the Vates or the prophet poet. Um, so you'll recall that Brittemart sees this shadowy image in this mirror that um, Merlin has created. And then um, she very reasonably, I guess, goes to search for who this figure is and shows up at Merlin's, um, shows up uh, to meet Merlin. And so in some ways, at the very, from the very beginning, it's that idea of not knowing something sets you up to more inquire about it that we saw in the poem. So when she meets Merlin, um, he 
tells her that this vision was her dis- destiny. And then he launches into a genealogical prophecy. So this is kind of one of those instances in the Fairy Queen where past history is masked as future prophecy. So there's a lot of interesting things um, going on with temporality. Um, and he starts telling this uh, prophecy about Britomart's descendants, basically, and reaching up to um, the current historical moment of Spencer's writing, which is during Queen Elizabeth's reign. What I find interesting about this moment that a lot of this is kind of a big performance that Merlin in this moment is deeply moved. He is lamenting all the things that are going wrong with the uh, figures he's describing. and it's crucial that he invokes similar feelings and passions in Brittomart. Um, she is moved by his reactions a lot of the time. So in this moment, Merlin is very much like that Sydneyan poet who is supposed to move and affect the reader. Um, but then, of course, he reaches this moment of Elizabeth's reign where there is this crisis of succession. We do not know what's going to happen after that. And unlike Merlin, Spencer is not a prophet, so he cannot tell us what's going to happen. Right. Um, But he presents this moment as one in like kind of the limit of prophecy and a moment where like the narrative stops and basically we cannot know what's going to happen after this. Um, So I think this is a moment of which we see a shift from like the kind of poetic mode that Spencer wants his readers to inhabit, where just there is like continual narration and desire to learn more versus a moment where knowledge becomes impossible. Um, and I think it's the first mode where like Britomart is constantly reacting and wanting to know more um, that activates her action and that sets her on her quest, um, uh, which we follow in the next book. And she gets, the, so, and she, sees what can happen and she also knows that there is a point beyond which we cannot know but she realized that she has to participate in some way for this one possible future to become reality right and so that's the kind of enactment of the speculative method um that um i see that's being modeled in other parts of the poem i think that's a beautiful close reading and and really indicative of the kinds of um, readings that you do throughout the book um, that, that really unfold um, a new dimension of the this um, of these texts. Um, similarly, um, Macbeth is a play that is constantly gesturing toward the future, and some of these predictions get fulfilled within the temporally limited event of the play. You make a compelling link from practical recipes to. Macbeth's attempts to actualize the Weird Sisters' prophecies. How is fulfilling a prophecy like baking a cake or making mutton broth? (laughs) Uh, uh, I guess the simplest answer is that both recipes and prophecies are future-oriented, and that something that's stated or prescribed needs to be fulfilled in the future, right, for the recipe or the prophecy to be actualized. both we might say are different kinds of predictive knowledge but of course you can only take this analogy so far like there's a lot of difference uh, between the two um and like prophecies uh, i would say recipes provide ingredients instructions are very 
transparent, I guess, at least uh, at first look. Um, and they are basically like giving you all the ways in which you can try something out. Um, it is the prescription for action. Um, well, prophecies are um, like very much quoted, quoted in the occult um, and are thought to be the provenance of a few, right? Whereas recipes are supposed to be accessible to all. And we could get more into the nitty gritties of both of them, but for the purposes of this discussion, I'll keep it till there. Um, so since the recipe is future oriented, the promise is that if you try it a recipe, right, you'll get a certain outcome, the cake or the mutton broth, which were your examples. Um, so my chapter on prophecy and re recipes um, kind of grew out directly from the questions about prophecy and action that I was grappling with in the Spencer chapter. And I was reading a lot about occult and practical knowledge at the same time. What I found fascinating and just reading Macbeth and rereading Macbeth at this time was how Macbeth, the play, links the prophecies to the necessity of taking action, right, of trying to make the certain outcome, like killing Duncan, come true. And we see this mostly when Lady Macbeth, but also Lady Macbeth, uh, sees these prophecies as calls to action rather than let's just read these out. These are prophecies, they'll come true, right? But especially Lady Macbeth really is very much focused on acting so that the prediction can become a prophecy, uh, I would say. So of course, the uh, Weird Sisters do not offer technical recipes, um, but they offer enough material in their riddled language or in their um, cryptic visions, uh, the visual cues in the later uh, prophecies that make that kind of propels Macbeth to think that yes, action is one suitable response to this. And I think I would say that Macbeth mistakes the prophecies as recipes for action, right? Because there is enough material in the prophecies to suggest that if only he did this, then things would be as he wants. Um, even though there are like warnings throughout um, by characters like Benko, who is also getting prophecies, but is like, no, I'm not, I'm just not going to trust these sources, right? So the characters the, like really want these to be recipes, I would say. And that's, I think, what is really interesting that we're operating in a culture where practical knowledge is so prevalent at various in various places, various discourses. And we see this kind of take this thick odd form um, in the play, I would say. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, in your reading of Macbeth, how are these Vatic occurrences or moments where characters predict what's going to happen dramatized? And why is sovereign authority so reliant on this realization of possible futures? Mm -hmm. yeah. As I already gestured uh, to in my previous answer, these most explicit occurrences, Vatic occurrences come uh, from the weird sisters in the beginning of the play and then in the visual prophecies. Um, that Macbeth is um, faced with later when he goes to ask them more questions. Uh, but I'll focus on the one moment that dramatizes this whole phenomenon, 
And also gets to a question of sovereign authority most directly. And this is the procession of kings that um, they show Macbeth. So this is the line of kings stretching out from Banco to the final figure, which represents King James. Um, so of course, it's important to remember that James claimed that he was a descendant of Banquo. Um, so that is obviously at play here. Um, but at the level of the theatrical apparatus, this spectacle shows us how a future, a political future that stretches out from Banquo to the present um, comes into being. But it also kind of fulfills Macbeth's worst nightmare that he is shut out of this future, right? And if we start thinking about it in terms of like prophecies and action, if Macbeth follows the prophecies that foretell his rule, he's also setting in motion the prophecies that will fulfill that Banquo's descendants would be rulers, mm-hmm. right? So there is no future in which both can, co- there is a future in which both cannot coexist. And Macbeth is seeing himself being shut out from history in this theatrical moment is how I uh, think about this. But what I also find interesting here is that the line stretching out to James is also, I think, kind of an invitation to the audience to see themselves in this historical future, um, historical present, theatrical future, right? And if they want to kind of perform the same kinds of imaginative projections that I was talking about earlier, they can see James's line stretching out to the future um, in a way that Spencer's reader would not be able to. I'm not saying that James's, um, like that the audience is imagining James's line continuing beyond what they're seeing on screen, but they could because the historical conditions allow them to. So I think this is kind of a very powerful moment of spectacle, theatrical representation where we see how political authority legitimizes and also like perpetuates itself um, through the visual prophecies. Uh, And it is this interaction between the past and the present, but also the fiction and the historical moment that I find really interesting. And there's just like a lot going on with Mm. all of them working together um, just on the, on the stage. Mm. And and what I'm also hearing is is the way uncertainty and possibility are kind of plastic across uh, across this um, twenty year period, and and different areas of futurity get extended or contracted depending on the historical circumstances in an interesting way. Um, yeah, um, your next chapter is about Francis Bacon. Um, a tutelary figure in early modern science. Um, as you discuss in the book, Bacon is cited as an intellectual precursor to the foundation of the Royal Society. His distinction between words and things was important, uh, as was his theorization of lang- uh, scientific language and idols of faulty thinking. What I think you show so elegantly in this book is how literary style, error, and endlessness function so complexly in Bacon's New Atlantis. Can you walk us through that reading? Sure, yeah. Uh, In some ways, this chapter encapsulates uh, the larger argument of the book um, and to show that literary techniques not only pervade, but are in some ways at the heart of um, 
are foundational to ways of thinking that we often consider scientific. Um, the first section of the chapter studies uh, Nova Merganum, which is Bacon's treaty, uh, treatise on induction, which is one of the central empirical methods um, of the so-called scientific revolution. My argument is that induction or the way that Bacon describes induction is formally uh, similar to a Spencerian romance that is structured around delay and dilation where error is foundational to the romance form. Um, that, and I trace how different techniques that Bacon is um, proposing, but also his aphoristic writing style um, are formally similar to, or structurally, methodologically similar to what we see in a romance narrative. Um, and this is to kind of open up the way uh, in which we often think and teach about Baconian science. And also, I try to think about this uh, moment. So when we talk about Bacon's literary ambitions and writers, we often focus either only on the New Atlantis, or we talk about his dependence on allegories and rhetoric, right? So I'm trying to like zoom out from that and think about how his entire corpus of science is structured by what we would call the imaginative um, very broadly. Hmm. And then I turn um, to the New Atlantis, um, which um, despite, and what I find fascinating is that despite saying that one shouldn't write fiction, Bacon is like obviously writing fiction, um, but the New Atlantis has often been read, and this goes back to the 17th century, um, as a bureaucratic text, as a text about institutions, about Bacon, um, the bureaucrat, rather than Bacon, the scientist, um, as if those are separable. Like um, William Harvey in the 17th century famously says that he writes, Bacon writes natural philosophy like a Lord Chancellor. And I think we see modern historians echo these kinds of things when they focus on the bureaucratic aspects of this mode. Um, what I find fascinating in the text is that at one level, Bacon is writing a utopian fiction in, in the sense that he's also trying to give a structure of a society that is law-bound, that has very specific rules. And there is this character of the governor who comes in and says, I will tell you that like we haven't done this for X years and we haven't done that for over years and our laws are very strict. And, but then he says, but nevertheless, you can stay for longer. And, you know, and nevertheless, we can make an exception or something like that. And there are these moments where like the law seems so flexible and the structure kind of becomes more open-ended. Mm. And this happens in other ways too. This figure of the, this character of the governor invites the narrator and his group to ask questions. And he says that those who know least should ask questions and that sets off the narrative. So in some ways, it's kind of a version of those who do not know set the terms for what one can know, because that's only what's going to be narrated. So that's another way in which I feel the um, utopia opens up the possibilities of what might be said. Mm. Um, and that's structured by those who do not know, like, again, like in the Spencerian sense of, if you more inquire, you will learn more. So there is that going on. And of course, uh, 
the new Atlantis ends without an ending, uh, right? So in some ways it is open-ended in like the most like obvious sense. And um, Bacon's, um, after Bacon's death, when it's published after the new Atlantis, um, his executor um, is attaches a list of things, desired things that to be done. Like these are like, explicitly some of the same lists of things that you see attached to the Novum Organum and stuff. So um, as the desiderata of Baconian science, these are like the things that we should study, the moons and the stars and the minerals and all, like all, all of nature, right? So in some ways, the New Atlantis is also open-ended in the sense that it goes unended nature. I'm having trouble with words. Uh, it's unended nature, like goes and ties back to the continuation and never-ending status of the Conian science as a whole. So I think there is another way in which it's completely just not containable in the way that I think is often suggested about the text. Um, yeah. Well, I, I love this point about those who know least set the terms by which th things will be knowable or, or the questions that will be raised. And in your discussion of Macbeth, you also brought up the the um, instrumental role of audiences in the creation of knowledge. Um, why do you think that's um, such an important aspect to explore in knowledge production? And to return to something you said earlier about um, the pedagogy or how teaching has influenced your your writing. Um, and your your research trajectory, um, what would you say the the importance of um, the unprofessional reader or the unprofessionalized reader in knowledge production? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And I mean, I think it's something we all work with regularly when we are teaching, um, especially in VC. I think we get a lot of unexpected questions. Um, and because I think a lot of times, um, I particularly teach um, a lot of students who have no experience in Renaissance literature and pre-modern literature at all, a lot of non-majors. So I think what I often walk in having a set of assumptions and then like that assumption blows apart because they have like no sense what I'm talking about, right? So I think what I find really interesting uh, in this project, having worked through the roles of readers and audiences as learners in some ways, right, or imagined, like not explicit all the time, is that they are they can set the terms of the con their learning to some extent. Like Britomart can show up mm -hmm. and want to know. So I mean there is a world in which Britomart doesn't show up and we do not get that moment. Right. So there is kind of an agency, I think, um to um the uneducated the um, novice. Um, and I think that is powerful because it allows writers experimenting with different ways of inhabiting the world, try out things, right, that are unexpected, that has not been thought about before, um, to imagine world social structures that 
might not have occurred to others. I, I think that is such a beautiful idea. It's going to be something that I'm, I carry forward with myself. And just the way our research is so situated in our, in our context, you know, the sorts of students that we have or the sorts of audiences we're participating in. Um, it's, it's such an important observation, I think. Um, speaking of unprofessionalized readers or, you know, you might say Margaret Cavendish is such an elusive writer. And I appreciated the nuance and clarity that you brought to your analysis of Cavendish's poetry and prose. For one thing, Cavendish's opinions about atomism and vitalism changes over the course of the writings, which you show, which you engage with. For another, Cavendish worked in such different genres from long prose work to lyric poetry. And also Cavendish was such a contrarian, famously mocking the idea that images that microscopes produced were fake. They were inaccurate. Fake news, um, according to her. How does Cavendish fit into early modern writing about possible knowledge? Yeah, I I love your description of Cavendish uh, because there's just like so many ways in which we could describe her, right? And it would be not enough. Um, So one of the arguments of the book is that we need to take poetry seriously as a philosophical way of thinking. Um, And I would say that Cavendish's thinking engages most explicitly with the facet of possible knowledge uh, that refuses to disentangle poetry and philosophy. Um, And in particular, the other argument of the book is that different kinds of literary works, which as a shorthand, we might say different genres, interact differently with reality and hence produce different kinds of knowledge. The hypothesis of Bacon's utopia about remaking the natural world is very different about the epic events in Paradise Lost that are about an inaccessible prelapsarian world, uh, right? So I think the Cavendish chapter tries to think about this by taking two of her works, uh, her early poems and fancies, especially the section that's called The Atomic Poems, and her later prose fiction, The Blazing World, to think about how different kinds of literary world making um, shape one's different understandings of knowledge, and I focus in particular on Cavendish's physics. So in the first part, I study um, the series of poems and Uh, poems and uh, fancies um, that are about creating worlds within worlds. The most famous of this is The World and the Earring, um, which if anyone hasn't read, should read, and it's just amazing. Um, So these poems as a a group um, dramatize, I think, the inability of humans to perceive the microscopic scale. And as a result, they produce um, an uncertainty uh, about what exists that ultimately in the world in the mirroring results in the dis- dissolution of the poetic worlds themselves. So because we cannot know these worlds when the mirroring breaks, we just don't even know that an entire world has been eradicated, right? So it's, that's kind of the idea. So my argument is that this disjunction between the human knowledge and the at- atomic scale of existence raises the question of whether physics, in her case, atomism, that separates 
a human from the world is actually a sustainable model for fiction making. Um, and so with this in mind, I turned to the blazing world to ask if this is a more um, sustainable model. And I use the word sustainable knowing that that has its other connotations, um, but I'll just durable, right? Like where the worlds are not destroyed because we cannot see them. Um, and the blazing world, uh, which like has been discussed a lot in terms of uh, Cavendish's vitalist uh, uh, um, physics, offers a different kind of world making in which these characters, uh, the Duchess and the Empress, um, ultimately create worlds out of their own minds. And I think the language that's used is self-moving um, matter. And the Duchess creates these worlds um, that come out of her own mind, but then she's also described as this in the same terms as the vitalist worlds. So there is this weird connection between the world, the um, creator of that world and Cavendish's physics, right? So it's just all of that works together and these worlds um, she can maintain and enjoy and have pleasure in. So what I want to think through in these chapter, through these uh, examples is that not that Cavendish is creating a world because she believes in a vitalist physics, but that a certain kind of fictional world making, let's say the prose utopian fiction, allows her to create a kind of world that allows for a certain kind of physics. So in some ways, the literary world making is a precondition for the scientific theories being possible or sustainable. Um, rather than the other way around, that this is just a reflection of her vitalism. Um, and so I call this a physical poetics, kind of to emphasize that I like this is about the poetics rather than the physics. And as someone who has just waded through so much scholarship on Cavendish and tried to figure out exactly when she turns from vital, at, at, atomism to vitalism and not finding this productive for me personally, this kind of argument that allowed me to turn away from that question to focus on her writing um, as a way of driving her physics, I think helps me resolve that issue to some extent. So I'm, hopefully that'll be useful. Um, the last thing I'll say about this chapter is there's a lot of emphasis on the changeability of the world and, the, and Cavendish explicitly ties this to the changeability of the female writer and celebrates that. Um, so, um, and I go into this in detail in the chapter. So there is like also, uh, I would say, an argument for like a feminist poetics in, in, uh, embedded throughout the chapter um, that is also tied to her ideas about nature as changeable um, and variable throughout. If my hazy memory of high school biology class is correct, <laughs> Repeatability is such a key part of the scientific method. Um, it has to be verifiable through iterable um, exercises, uh, experiments. But John Milton's Paradise Lost is interested in unrepeatability. The poem has a complex range of examples of experiments that can't be repeated or can't be universalized. What are some moments in Paradise Lost that you think are crucial to our understanding of, of how Milton is engaging with early modern science. Yeah, so I ended the Milton chapter and I spent so much time with this chapter, partly because there was so much excellent work on Milton and science. Um, 
um, of all the, I mean, leaving aside Bacon, of all the writers, there's just been a lot of investment in Milton's writing um, alongside scientific practices, especially experimental philosophy. Um, and of course, Milton himself invites some of this the comparisons when he talks about Galileo um, multiple times in his writing, um, especially and when he's talking about like the importance of reason and all of that, right? I think that resonates a lot with scientific works. Um, and what struck me uh, that while I was working on this chapter is that Milton is writing the Paradise Lost in the Early Restoration uh, along the same times as the Royal Society has come into being. And there are a lot of comparisons made between uh, the thinkers and was Milton influenced by these writers? Uh, is like a key, it's an open question. We don't have a lot of evidence for this, but a lot of these um, experimental philosophers were authorizing their work um, through claims to repeatability. If you perform this experiment multiple times, ideally it will produce the same result. Um, and also they're making kind of an argument for accessibility, that's not the right word, but they're also saying that even if you read about this experiment, you should believe it's true because like even the act of reading and encountering this is a kind of what Stephen Shapin and Simon Schaefer called virtual witnessing. That was a part of the experimental method. So um, Milton is on the other hand, really interested in these moments that are unrepeatable, right? Like you fall and there is, you can't keep falling. I guess, you, well, you can't keep literally falling. Um, Stanley Fish would say something otherwise. Uh, but, um, and Milton is also interested in thinking about the prophetic uh, figure of the poet who has one of the select few, right, who has access to this kind of knowledge about the inaccessible prelapsarian world. So it's a very different way of thinking about the world. And so it's there is something different going on like in Milton's poetics that is not just experimental. And I settled on this idea of the singular event um, that allows a writer like Milton to think about how poetry can provide a certain kind of certitude that experimental philosophy, which is about probabilistic knowledge cannot. So my touchstone for this um, is um, the reading of Eve's Fall, uh, which has been talked about um, again and again in terms of experimentation. Eve is a bad experimenter. Eve is a good experimenter. Uh, she shouldn't have experimented. Like, there's like a lot of literature on this. And I tried to walk through this event um, just of Satan's temptation of Eve and think through the various stages in which Eve refuses um, to eat the apple, how she doesn't buy into Satan's argument about repeatability um, until Satan uses the same arguments about like the right, like, you know, the change in degree uh, from one state of being to another as one tends towards Godhead. This is the argument that Raphael has just told Adam and Eve has overheard a little while ago. So, and then Eve falls, but Eve uses the word experiment um, after this scene. And 
I would argue that this is the only time Milton uses experiment in all his writing. And I would argue that Eve looks back and says that she has tried to repeat something that cannot be repeated because eating the fall is not, eating the fruit is not a repeatable thing that will like constantly let you elevate your state of being. And in retrospect, she realizes that she's tried to perform an experiment and this way of knowing a fallen natural world is insufficient to do that. And so the event of the fall teaches her the insufficiency of experiment. And that produces a kind of certainty about what is completely different about her new state of being. And so this is the uh, main uh, scene I look at, but there are like many other instances throughout the poem um, where I try to think through how what was seems likely again and again is proven wrong by a singular moment. Um, like the fallen, like the unfallen angels all follow Satan because he, they have been trained or they are accustomed to following him, right? Um, before the fall. Um, and so they, they're just habituated. So there are these moments of habituated knowledge that are insufficient to grapple with like the, uh, like the metaphysical questions that are being asked by the um, epic. So yeah, so that was, and that is something that keeps happening throughout um, the poem. And the last thing I'll say uh, about this is, I think Milton's poem obviously resonates a lot with the experimental philosophers. Um, in terms of like the questions it's asking. And that's why I think it draws these parallels. But Milton might be interested in the same questions of repeatability and uh, probability and likelihood that a lot of these uh, experimental philosophers were interested in. But that doesn't mean that they're that he's experimenting. I'd like to talk to guests about their writing process. How do you approach the writing of academic prose? Do you have ideals you aspire toward in terms of style? My writing process is very chaotic. I do not have like any other way to describe it. Um, I think like a lot of us, I need to write my way into my ideas. Uh, and for me, the way to do that is by close reading. Um, and I always whatever I'm writing on, I just need to just close read a few passages, I think, to kind of figure out what I'm trying to say. So if I were writing the Macbeth chapter, I would say I would choose three passages on prophecy and work through them. And oftentimes I have to do that before even I can start any other research. Um, and for me, then, then the, the bulk of the writing process is just like trying to make sense of all of these disparate readings and trying to bring them together. So it's just round and round of revisions. Um, and that is where I think I spent most of my writing. Um, and if I, I wish I could outline everything and write uh, down, you know, and I think, I, I think that's, if I were aspiring towards something that would be what I would be aspiring to. But I think also just the book demonstrates at some level, um, I'm uncomfortable in making just like one broad claim and I'm interested in like thinking about different ideas that go and sit alongside each other and stuff. So I think it's hard to start from a big idea and then just map it out and write about it for me. I think um, intellectually, 
And so my writing process kind of reflects that. Um, and partly also, I think because English is not my first language, it's not even the second language that I speak. Um, uh, a lot of time, I'm just working towards a certain kind of clarity in my writing that just takes multiple rounds of writing uh, and just working through the prose. Um, yeah, so those are just like a bunch of disparate things. I wish I had like a clearer writing process to like share about. That would be nice. Yeah, I, I deeply admire your style. Um, and what's what's resonating with me about your answer is that in reading the book, um, the, the, of course, the conceptual stuff is there and, and the big picture stuff is there. But I just loved like sort of coming upon these close uh, these passages that you close read and um, how wonderfully rich and interesting they are. So in, in your answer, that's kind of what I'm seeing as a reader is like these these beautiful close readings. Now that this book is out in the world, what are you turning your attention to? Do you have a book project, a class you're designing, a hobby? Academics sometimes have those. I've heard, rumor hasn't, that you were taking up. Yeah, um, I have been working on a couple of different projects the last um, couple of years, um, and I'm hoping to turn my attention to. So one of them... Um, broadly conceived is like thinking about the relationships between the fields of eco-criticism and critical race studies and post-colonial theory. So thinking about race, colonialism, and the environment together. And um, I've been doing talks and um, writing articles on these. Um, and I'm curious to see what the next steps are. So I think that's like the most obvious uh, project um, that I'm turning to. But I've been doing a lot of collaborative work on that too. So I think I'm excited to think about this project beyond a monograph. Um, I would like to kind of really think about this in terms of pedagogy, in terms of community engagement, uh, things that I think I've just not had that much time to think about while finishing this book. And the other project, I think it became clear to me while finishing possible knowledge that I'm really interested in questions of method and methodology. Um, and I've been doing some work on rhetoric, poetics, um, and scholarship on race. Um, and I'm interested in thinking about like how our critical methodologies have shaped how we read poems and what we look for when we're reading um, these poems and what we tend to not look for. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I saw that you're working on an article with Ayanna Thompson and Hillary Eklund. Is that right? On and Je and Jennifer, and Jennifer Park. Yeah, Jennifer yeah, Park. it was. Yeah, it was just accepted. So, like, oh, congratulations! <laughs> can, you. can you give us a, um, a a foretaste of what it will be? So on? it was based on our uh, essay talk that we gave two years ago at the virtual essay conference. Um, in 2021, um, and we were kind of thinking about how the fields of eco-criticism and PCRS haven't really been in conversation um, and trying to think through that issue and what, like how a collective work and collaboration um, uh, can help us come out of some of these binds that we work in our silos and we think we have expertise in one field. Um, so. It's a piece that reflects on that, drawing on our 
range of scholars um, and thinkers. Um, and we think a little bit about um, like literary history, a little bit about the legacies of humanism and discourses of mastery through The Tempest, through Ben Johnson, through recipe culture. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a, not argumentative in a traditional sense, but kind of reflecting on where our fields are and how um, different fields which are thinking about questions of social justice might um, collaborate and think together more. Okay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Deborah Priya. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure.